0: So let's go ahead and I'll read 1 John 2, 15 through 17, and we'll dive into this then together. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Some of you recognize who this lady is. If you watch football, you know that that is Mrs. Kelsey. I don't know her first name. Um, But she is the mom for Travis and Jason Kelsey. So these guys both play in the NFL. One plays for the Eagles, the other plays for the Chiefs. And occasionally, they end up playing each other. So their teams are playing. The Chiefs will play the Eagles. And who's she going to root for? Her sons are on both teams, so who's she going to root for? Well, I guess she's just going to do the best that she can and just be a good mom and try to support them. But there's a lot of people who try to do this with their Christian walk. They try to support both teams. In sports, we understand, you're going to support one team and cheer for them, and you're going to hope the other team doesn't score. You're going to hope your team wins and the other team doesn't. So you're supporting one team at the expense of the other. In our Christian walk, though, sometimes, we try to say, I'm on team God, I'm on his side, and yet we live like we're part of the world's team. We try to say, yeah, I'm 100% on God's team, I'm living the way he wants me to live, and we say that, but then we end up living just the way that the world does, according to its system. That can't happen. It can't be a part of our Christian walk. We need to be on one side, or we're going to be on the other. We need to be on God's side, and we can't walk according to this world's system, as John is going to show us here in 1 John. But where have we been up to this point? It's good to know where we've been in 1 John, up to where we are now, to be able to see where John is taking us here. So we looked a few weeks ago, when we last had a chance to look at 1 John, in 7 through 11... John is mentioning this old commandment that they had heard, that they had known. This is the commandments that they had grown up knowing and understanding. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and Jesus adds strength. Jesus always takes it to that next level. No matter what it is, he always takes it to that next level of intensity. So love God first, love him most above everything else. Then you can love your neighbor as yourself. This is the old commandment that they had heard. They knew this. They'd grown up hearing this. But then he mentions this is a new commandment. It's the old commandment, but it's new. It's new in Jesus. It's new in its emphasis, and it's new in its example. Jesus set a different emphasis for this commandment because Jesus obeyed because he loved the Father. He obeyed because not just because the commandment was there, not just because it was written, therefore he was going to do it, and he did it, But he did it because he loved the Father. That's a different emphasis than what the readers of John's letter would have originally understood that commandment to be. New emphasis, then a new example. The way that Jesus lived his life was a new example of that new emphasis that he gave to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So it's a new commandment. We're to walk that out. We're to live that out, looking like Jesus and how we love God the Father first and we love him most, and then we can love the people around us right. Then we can love them well as God commands us to, because it's not an option. It's a commandment. He also says then that we have to be careful then how we walk, because how we walk can cause ourselves to stumble but we can cause others to stumble around us as we trip and fall because we're not watching closely how we love God first and love him most, and then not loving others as ourselves, as he would have us to, to love him first so that then spreads out to everyone else around us. We might trip and fall if we're not cautious and careful to watch ourselves to stay close to Jesus, which then causes those around us to trip and fall as well, our other brothers and sisters in Christ that are a part of the church that God has given us to be a part of have to be oh so careful how we are walking, how we're living out this Christian life, because others are watching on. Then we come to verses 12 through 14, and John gives us an example of here's some of the people who might be a part of your church, the different ages, maturity levels that are a part of a local church. You have little children, then you have children, so those are those people who are new in their faith, they're young believers, then you have those that are growing, they're still young, but they've not matured yet, they're still learning, they're still growing, becoming more like Christ. Then he brings us to fathers and mothers, so those are the spiritually mature, so he says fathers, but it's meaning the spiritually mature that are part of the church, those who have gone before us, they've walked that Christian life a little bit longer than we have, or God's used things in their lives to mature them rapidly, and they're very mature believers, They're walking well in the Lord and setting a good example. And then you have the young men that's mentioned. Those are the youth, those who have a lot of energy. They've got a lot of passion. They're doing big things for God, and they're excited about it. We need all of those a part of the church. We need young believers coming up through. We want to see that. We want to see those babies in Christ coming up through. They need to be growing into children. We need the youth. We need that energy and passion. But we can't do without the fathers and mothers of the church, the spiritually mature. They're all part of this body. So we have to be careful then how we walk, that we're representing Christ well, that we are representing him well in how we love, how we love God the Father. And we have to be oh so careful because all around us, as we are living out this Christian life, as we're seeking to love him first and love him most and love the world, There's a danger that's constantly going to be there because we're still living in a sin-cursed world. As believers, we've been saved from the penalty of sin because we've accepted that gift of salvation through Jesus. We no longer have to pay the penalty of sin. He did that on our behalf. He paid the penalty for our sin. No more do I have to make amends for the wrong things that I have done on an eternal level. Christ did that on my behalf. And I don't have to worry about, in in many ways, the power of sin because I have God, the Holy Spirit, inside of me and his word in front of me giving me every tool I need to overcome and fight sin. Now, I will still choose at times to sin. That's daily a battle to choose. Will I obey or will I not obey? But ultimately, I have God, the Holy Spirit, inside of me. The power of sin has no hold on me as it did before I trusted in Jesus Christ as my Savior. So I am freed, and you are freed as believers from the penalty of sin. The power of sin has no hold on you like it once did, but we still live in the presence of sin. We still struggle daily being in the presence of sin. So then we have to battle against the power of sin. But through the Holy Spirit working within us, God working through us, his word in our hearts and in our minds, We can fight the power of sin, but we struggle with that presence of sin. Someday we'll be with him. Someday we'll be in heaven. There's a daily battle that has to be fought, a daily battle that has to be fought in our hearts and in our minds that we don't live according to this world and its system, but we live according to God and his word. Verses 15 and 16 then are where we'll start. I'll read those for us. So 1 John 2, 15 and 16 say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Some people try to walk a happy middle ground, but there really is no happy middle ground when it comes to living the world system or living God's system. How many of you have seen those Coexist stickers that show up on, you know, whether it's the bumper of a car or you go to get your coffee and it's there at Roma Joe's, they put all those stickers around the little counter on the, the window where you go to you know, reach for your coffee. There's stickers all over the place. Often coexist stickers are there. And the whole idea of what I think most people mean when they have that sticker when they're thinking about it is we all gotta get along. We all gotta just do that, we're in this together. Let's all just be kind to each other. Okay, sure, that's a good message. Let's be kind, we can love each other, that's great. But there's a deeper message behind this that's not just let's just all be kind to each other. That's fine, but the deeper message behind this is you don't love your system, your religion, to the point that it makes me feel bad about the religion that I'm a part of. Your way of thinking shouldn't be so strong that it makes me feel bad about the the system that I, I live up to. So it's not really a matter of let's all just be kind to each other. It's a matter of taking in a worldview that really says, none of these are true, so don't really be passionate about it. That's what the coexist stickers really is. It's not about let's all love each other. It's instilling a worldview into you or trying to instill a worldview into you, not just the acceptance of other people. John says, don't love the world or the things in the world. That's in stark contrast. So the worldview behind the coexist stickers. Because that's what it is, it's a world view. We're not talking him when he says don't love the world. He's not talking about the people of the world. He's not talking about the earth. He's talking about the world's system. The thing that is opposed to God in every way, in every shape, in every form. Not, not a thing, not a person, but a world view. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world not talking about the planet, he's not talking about the world system, that verse is talking about the people. God loved the world, the people of this world in this way, that he sent Jesus. Paul is talking, in Corinthians, he's talking to the church, he says, don't associate with the sexually immoral that are a part of the church. And he goes on quickly then to say, and I don't mean those that are outside the church, because if I meant the people outside the church, then you'd have to be out of this world, we couldn't be in this world. He means the people within the church, because we expect the people of the world to act like the world system. That's what we expect. They are in the world. They live according to the world system. Many of them are very wonderful, kind people, but they live according to the world system. Many of them are not, and we know what that looks like, but we expect them to live according to the way that the world thinks, the way that the world wants to guide them and direct them. Um, I had a coach in high school, Mr. Lee, was by far the most influential teacher or coach that I had in all the years that I was in school sports. So Mr. Lee was awesome. Mr. Lee was the JV soccer coach, but he was also our conditioning coach. So he'd make us run laps, and we'd do sprints, and if we didn't do it quick enough, we'd do push-ups but he loved kids and i just kn- you knew he loved kids he loved students he loved his athletes didn't always love his job because being a teacher's hard there's hard things about it there's really good things about it but he loved kids to the point where me and my brother would go and we'd help him get the spaghetti suppers ready for the team dinners that we would do. We didn't have to do that, but we wanted to do that because we really respected Mr. Lee. He was a great person. He was a great coach. He was a great leader. I invited him to my wedding and he came. It was you know, so many years after I'd been in high school and he drove all the way up to Spruce Head to be able to come to the wedding. Mr. Lee meant a whole lot to me, but he wasn't a believer. Really nice guy. I hope he gets to listen to this sermon someday, because he was really a very influential person in my life as a student. But he wasn't a believer. I didn't expect him to act like a believer. He lived according to this world system. Very nice person. But the world system, whether you're a very nice person, or we know what the opposite of that looks like, the world system is opposed to God. It's a worldview. And a worldview is that lens in which we see everything else around us, it's that filter that we use to see what is reality, what is real life all about. It's that grid that everything goes through, what we read, what we watch, what we take in. And if we filter everything according to God's word and according to his spirit in us, that's a biblical worldview everything goes through that grid of Scripture. Everything guided them by the Holy Spirit helping us to understand his word so that we might better understand the world in which he's placed us in. That's a biblical worldview. The opposite of that, though, is if we're trying to filter everything that we take in, whether it's what we listen to or we read or whatever it is, if we filter that through the world system, then that's a worldly worldview, and that's opposed to God and his worldview. But there are some Christians who try to think, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live on God's side. I'm going to be a believer. But you know, I'm going to let this world and its system shape me, too. It can't happen. You either got to be on one side or the other. You can't do both simultaneously. You can't filter things through God's biblical worldview and through the world's worldly, opposed to God worldview, and that work out. Can't happen. By the very nature of what this world is, Worldview world view that's according to the world is in opposition to God. And verse 16 first shows us where this really first starts to show up. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. So you you can go back there, just real briefly, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And this shows us where did all the troubles of this world come from? Where did all the heartache first show up? Where did all of this go wrong? And it goes right back to Genesis chapter 3. Third chapter of the Bible, and everything's already falling apart. Everything God made was good. And then here we are in Genesis 3, and it all goes wrong. How do we get to that point? Verse 17, or excuse me, 16 of chapter 2 of 1 John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and desires of the eyes, and pride and possessions. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So here we see in Genesis 3 1 through 7, Adam and Eve, they're there in the garden. God's given them just one rule. The only rule he's given them is don't eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it, only rule. Here you have Adam and Eve there in the garden, and Satan comes to them, disguised as a serpent. He comes to them. There's Adam and Eve. They're there by the tree. So we know Satan's talking to Eve, but Adam must have been right there close because we see him eat from the tree as well. And Satan comes to them, and what does Satan do? He introduces just a very simple question I'll read the verses for us now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden neither shall you touch it that's legalism she's adding now to what God said lest you die But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, that's Satan taking away from what God said, because they certainly will die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So only a half-truth. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took up its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here they are, tempted by Satan. All he does is introduce a little question. Did God really say? So she starts to look at this tree in a whole different way. She saw that the tree was good for food. That's a basic human need. It can be met by this tree. This is good for eating. This is good, doesn't God want me to have good food? Doesn't God want me to enjoy the things he's put in the garden? I need to eat, so I need to eat some food. This is good, look at this, this is great for food. I should be eating this, this is a desire of the flesh. It's a human need, she needs to eat, so who's good? Doesn't God want her to eat good food? Of course he does. It was a delight to the eyes. God didn't make no junk. He made something awesome. It was beautiful. This was a masterpiece of what God had made. It was gorgeous. Look at it. It's right there on the tree. It's wonderful. It's the desire of the eyes. And they looked at it. And as they looked at it longer, a longing developed in their heart. The tree was desired to make one wise. Oh, what they could have if only they ate it. They could have wisdom. Be like God, knowing good and evil, knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong, the ability to discern things, to understand things for themselves, to be able to walk forward in wisdom and be what, and do what's right. Doesn't God want them to do what's right? Of course he does. Of course God wants them to be able to walk in wisdom. If only they had it. It's the pride of possessions. So they took it and they ate it. And all of humanity fell into sin and decay because of it. So what happened? How did they get to that point so quickly? It's because they stopped filtering what they knew to be true through what God actually said. And they allowed that little phrase by Satan, did God really say, to change the filter that they used to take in what he was saying. And instead of filtering it through what God really did say, They filtered it through, what do my eyes see? What did the doubt introduce that they're no longer taking this in and saying, God didn't say that. God said this. They took it in by, here's what I see. Here's what I'm perceiving. Here's what I'm wanting to understand it to be. They went into Satan's worldview. And at its core, he says, God's lying to you. Poor you. God must not really love you. He says, this is off limits. But why would God take away something that's so good for you? It's good to eat, it looks beautiful It make you wise. Doesn't God want those things for you? Poor you, God must not really love you. How did they get to that point so quick? We look at that and we say, you know, if I was there and I was in that situation, I would have looked right through Satan's lies. I would have, there's no way on earth I would have fallen. But we do that really quickly too, don't we? We fall for Satan's lies. Not in that way necessarily, but in plenty of other ways. The desires of the flesh. God, you know I need money. God, you know I need more money. Inflation's pretty bad, God. I need more money. So I'm not really cheating on my taxes. I get a tax return anyways. So you know, it's really just I'm going to get that money back anyway, so it's not really cheating, God. It's just, you know, it's it's fine. Or maybe the cashier hands you a little bit more change than you were supposed to get. You say, praise God, I needed a couple of extra bucks. God, you've provided for me. No, we're trying to shortchange the reality of what God says and the good ways that he provides for us, but we're going about it in our own way. We're filtering things through not God's worldview, but the world's worldview. Desires of the flesh, God, you're going to provide for my needs, but man, you know, I'm going to find a way around that and see this taken care of right away. Desires of the eyes. God, you made beautiful things. When there is nudity or sex in a movie, Lord, it's really just an expression of a good thing that you made. God, you made this. It's beautiful. You said it was good. You said it's great for us. You know what? God, when it's in a movie and I'm watching this, it's just an expression of praising you. Look at the good thing that you made. So I can take that in, God. I can take it in. I can watch it. And it's not going to affect me or bother me. So pride, or that's the desires of the eyes. It's not how God set that up to be. It's not how God intended that to be used. Pride of possessions. God, you gave me an awesome house, and three cars, and a boat, and bikes, and all this hunting gear, and a lake house, and you can fill in the blank with all the good stuff. God, I want to be a good steward of everything you've given me. You've given me all this great stuff, God. I want to take care of it, but man, God, it's going to mean i got to work a little bit extra late. i got to go into work a little bit early. Man, God, sometimes I'm going to have to miss some Sundays because i want to make sure that I'm making enough money to be a good steward of everything that you've given me. So, Lord, you know, I'm going to take time to read my Bible later. I don't really have time this morning. I'm really busy, God. You know, I get to the end of the day, I'm real tired, God, because I'm trying to be a good steward of what you've given me. Um, I might miss some Sundays, God. I really, you know, I can't take time to sit down and listen to that live stream intentionally and purposefully. You know, I'll I'll find some other time to, to, to watch it later. Uh, You know, I'll I'll get there next Sunday, God. We come up with excuses, reasons, the pride of possessions then. Satan never tried to contradict the reality of God, never tried to manufacture something that wasn't actually right in front of them. All he did was introduce that little phrase, did God actually say? And when he introduced that doubt of whether God actually said this or not, What it did was introduce the idea for Adam and Eve to then see things through a different lens, a different worldview, not look at things the way that God had told them, not look at things through scripture. Now, they had the actual words of God because he spoke with them and walked with them. They had God's word, and they ceased to filter things through what he actually said, and they filtered it just through what their eyes could see. And we see what the immediate result was. It was shame and alienation away from God. Church, we can't let... The love of God be replaced by the love for this world and its system. You can't walk both paths. You can't try to love the world and love God at the same time. James 4.4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. You cannot live by this world's system and say, no, I really do follow God's system, his worldview, his biblical principles, and his word and his spirit that he's given us. You can't do both. There is no happy middle ground. So what's the result then? The world is dying. We are abiding. This world is passing away. Go back to 1 John 2, verse 17 says, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Banksy is an anonymous British artist known for his street art. He's a graffiti artist there in Great Britain, and he does incredible artwork with very normal, very mundane things, whether it's a person or an object, and he takes that and he does just beautiful artwork that is very profound or sometimes is politically antagonistic using just often it's just two or three colors. But it's beautiful art. He does an incredibly good job. So he's known as being a really good artist. He's also known as being a bit of a prankster. So in 2018, the CNN reported that he had a painting that went up for sale and it was being sold in an auction house. It was a little girl reaching up for a balloon. So a little girl, she's reaching up to this heart-shaped red balloon that's flying off, and it sold for $1.4 million. So $1.4 million for one of his paintings. The gavel falls, the painting's been sold, but moments later, that painting, much to everyone's shock and horror, starts to slide through the frame through the shredder that was built into the frame, and it gets cut to ribbons right there in front of everybody. Everything in this world, according to the world system, is dying. Nothing will last, whether it is worth $1.4 million dollars or it has no monetary value. Nothing in this world will last. It is all passing away. Nothing that this world has to offer us will ever bring any kind of lasting satisfaction. It's all just a counterfeit of the good things that God has given us. Satan can't create things. He can only pervert what has been created and seek to short circuit the good plan that God has for our lives. It's all passing away. Satan can't do anything but try to make some kind of counterfeit of what God has already given us that's good. And, and Matthew chapter 4 is a good example of how Satan works. So Matthew chapter 4 is a temptation of Jesus. Jesus has just been baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit is there. He then calls Jesus out into the desert for testing for 40 days. So by the time we see Satan showing up, Jesus is literally starving to death. 40 days without food in the desert, being tested, led by the Holy Spirit there on purpose. So then here comes Satan coming to Jesus. And Satan starts to tempt Jesus in three ways. He's tempting him with provision. He says, Turn these stones into bread. Turn these stones into bread. Could Jesus have done it? He could have. Wasn't going to happen according to God's plan if he did it on his own. He offers him protection. He takes him up to the top of the temple and says, Throw yourself down, because isn't God going to command his angels concerning you to take care of you so you don't strike your foot against a stone? Did Jesus already have protection? He did. Nothing was going to happen to Jesus apart from the will of God, because he was there for a very specific purpose, for a very specific time frame, for a very specific reason. He already had protection. And then he takes him up to a high mountain and he sees all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is going to be, it is, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But here Satan has the gall then to say, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you will just bow down and worship me. Jesus sees right through that. Not for a moment is Jesus deceived. Not for a moment. And he fights back with the only weapon he had and the only weapon that we have. He fights back with scripture. He fights back with scripture. And he says, it is written. And then Satan leaves him. No hold on him. This world has nothing eternal to offer us. All this world has to offer us is the desire for more, the disappointment for receiving less, and the reality that ultimately we've been deceived. Because when we pass away, we can't take any of this with us. Nothing that we have acquired, nothing that we've accumulated for ourselves, can we take with us. It's all gone. We pass away, and those that are left behind us decide what happens with our stuff. None of it goes with us. J.D. Rockefeller was the founder of the Standard Oil Company and the first billionaire of the United States and one of the richest uh, men on Earth. When a reporter asked him how much money is enough, he said, just a little bit more. That's the world system. That's what the world lives by, just a little bit more. But it's all fading away. It's all dying. It will not last. It will not satisfy. C.S. Lewis then that said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And we are. We're not made for this world. We're not made to remain here. We are made for another world. We're made for more than this, more than what the world can offer us. And that's a little bit of what Hebrews 11 talks about. You have the writer of Hebrews talking about those who are part of the hall of faith. Those men and women who have gone before us, that walked in faith. God gave them a promise that they never saw lived out in this life. They never saw that promise fulfilled, but they took God at his word. And they looked forward to, to one day. That promise will be fulfilled. And he says that they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Some reason, whenever I read that, I always get a picture of Scotland and bagpipes in my head. I don't know why. That always happens. They took God at his word. He said it. They believed it. They never saw the outcome of it. Now they have. Now they have, because they're with the Father but they walked in faith. The things of this world, the world system, had no hold on them because they remembered who they were in Christ, and for their case, in God, the promise that he had made to them, what his word was to them. And the things of this world had no hold on them, no lasting hold, because they were looking forward to what was to come. The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we abide? How do we abide forever? Abiding meaning to remain like that branch that is connected to the vine. It's getting its life, its sustenance through that vine. It's abiding. It's remaining. How do we abide in him? And so then obey his will. How do we do that? How do we know what his will is? Romans 12.2 tells us this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, what is good and acceptable. How do I make sure I'm walking as he walked? That's one of those other themes that we've seen here in 1 John. How do I walk just as he walked? How do I make sure that I'm loving as he loved? How do I make sure that I'm abiding in him? I allow my heart and my mind to be transformed By his word. I am rooted and grounded in him and in his word, daily spending time in his word. And Psalm 1 is a great example of a person who does this, who lives this out. It says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk, sit, or stand. Those are progressive levels of acceptance. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk, stand, or sit in this world system. Don't let the world govern what they hear, and what they take in, and what they absorb. They don't subscribe to the world's system of understanding and belief. But they are into God's word. They meditate on his word day and night. Their mind is transformed by God's word in them, his spirit working through them, so that then they're like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season. God's word working in them, working through them. So then they bear that fruit that is seen, that life that is visible. And it's not so for the the world, but they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. If you want to abide in Christ, if you want to live out your faith in a greater and greater way, loving the Father greater, reflecting Christ with greater intensity, you have to be in God's word. You can't obey what he says if you don't know what he says. You have to be in his word. You can't overcome the temptations of this world if you are not first taking on the weapon that Jesus himself used, which is the word of God. You will become what you allow to live in your headspace. What you think on, what you allow to remain there is what you're going to become like. I was talking with somebody just last week about the idea of what we listen to, what we take in, shapes who we are. The music we listen to shapes our mood. The media that we take in, however we take that in, changes our perspective on the world around us. The things we watch, the things, the video clips, the movies, the shows, whatever it is, that embeds itself in our heart and in our mind, and it shapes us. So what are we allowing to live in our minds? What are we allowing to shape us and to change us? If we desire to abide in Christ, it will be his word. If that's our heart's desire, to abide in him, then we're going to let God's word transform us. We're going to let God's word shape us. His word will dominate your mind. If his word is filling your mind, then there really isn't much room for anything else. Now I don't necessarily mean you always have a verse right there on your, on your mind at all times. There's a Bible verse right there. That could be the case for you. Some of you are really good at scripture memory. It's taken me a long time to try to, to memorize scripture. But the principles of God's word, the truth of what his word says, is always the filter that you run everything through whether you see it, you hear it, you're talking about it, you're engaged in it, you're letting his word be that, that grid that everything else passes through, saying, does this help me to understand God greater? Does this help me to reflect him better? Does this shine a bad light on Jesus as others watch on and see me participating in this? Do they see Christ in me, or do they see something far different than that? Let his word shape you and guide you and change you and be the grid that everything filters through. So how do we do that? Very practically, how do we make that happen in our lives? It means we have to be very purposeful, very or intentional about being in God's word daily, habitually, constantly, constantly. Being in God's word, whatever that needs to look like for you, it has to be intentional. You have to purposefully, intentionally set time aside to be in God's word because your schedules are busy. Even those of you who are retired, I know some of you are retired and you're busier now than you were before you were retired. You have to make time to be in God's word. It won't just happen. You have to do it on purpose because something else is going to fill your schedule. If you don't purposefully set that time aside to be in God's word or be in prayer, something else will take that that space instantly. You have to be very purposeful and intentional about giving yourself a space, somewhere where you can go to be in God's word. Some of you have kids running everywhere, or your schedule is just nuts, and there's lots of people in and out and around, and you're busy. You have to find a space where you can go to say, I'm going to read God's word intentionally here. For this amount of time I'm going to go and I'm gonna pray in this space during this time and it needs to be that the people in your family in your home uh, wherever it might be knows I'm just not gonna bother them during this time because they've set this space aside but that has to be intentional that's not just gonna happen and then you have to fight for the attention of your mind because as you sit down to read God's Word Satan's gonna do all he can to distract you and often it'll be good things that he'll put into your mind He might use good things to take you away from best things. Sometimes it's less than good things that go into our mind. But we have to be purposeful and intentional and fight for that. Because if we can fight for that and win that battle through the power of the Holy Spirit, the control of our mind and the intentionality and the purposefulness of what we are doing to be in God's word, it makes Satan's job of trying to get us to subscribe to the world system a whole lot harder outside of that time. The battle for your mind is important. What do you allow to live there? Let God's word transform you. Let his word shape you. Let his word be the grid that everything else goes through. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, what is good and acceptable. So what is God's will for our lives? What's his will for us? We already had a chance to look at that earlier on in chapter 2 and 7 and 8. That's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and Jesus adds strength. That's his will for your life. And then that you love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first. Love him most. That's God's will for your life. And then you're going to live that out in a way that your brothers and sisters in Christ around you see that and feel that. And the watching world will see that and feel that. And they may not know exactly what that is in that moment, but there will be something different about you because you love God first, you love him most, and that life will flow through you because it's his life. They'll see that, and then you'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with people and give them a reason for the hope that you have. And at its core, all of this is an identity issue. All of it's an identity issue because when I remember who I am in Christ, I remember what He's done for me. It makes it a whole lot easier to fight the battle and not give in to the world system. When I forget who I am in Christ, and I don't keep my eyes focused on him, it's easier to fall into what the world would have me be doing or to listen to the lies that Satan gives me through the world system. It's easier to do that when I forget who I am in Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this, though. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the reality of who we are in Christ. Paul also says we're a new creation. The old us has passed away. We're a new creation. We've been raised with Christ. So we need to seek those things that are above. Letting his word transform us. Letting his word change us. Not living by this world system, but by living by God's system. His worldview, letting His Word transform us so that everything we take in, we're filtering it through that grid of God's Word. Letting His Holy Spirit move us then, shaping us, changing us, abiding in Him then, so that we might obey the will of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us all that we need, that we might know you, we might know your word, we might know your will for our lives. And Father, you've given us your word that it might be the weapon that we use to fight temptation, to filter everything else that is going on around us, all the things that we are bombarded with daily. We can filter it through you, through your word, that we might live this life in a way that pleases you and glorifies you and shines uh, the life of Christ to a world that's watching on, a dying world, Lord, we, we abide and we, we remain in you because your life flows through us. I pray that the world watching on might see that. I pray that we might be intentional and purposeful about not giving into this world system, but intentionally and purposefully letting your word fill our hearts and fill our minds so there's no room for anything else. And everything instantly is filtered through what you have actually said. And we don't give into that lie of, did God really say? Father, I pray that you. You transform our hearts and our minds, and that we might live that out as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.